Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming on and talking with me today. I'm happy to be here. So, like I like I said to you before, um, I read your book, Walking Each Other Home, the book that you wrote with Ram Dass on dying and, and handling that process and supporting others um, in doing so as well. But b before we get into that, I was just interested to go into a little bit of your background. Uh, so what was your path into spirituality like? What got you started? It's a long story. <laughs> I'll keep it short. <laughs> I, uh, I was in graduate school in uh, the late 60s, 67 to 70. And you may have heard in your history books that that was a very, um, you know, a radical time. And um, uh, so uh, I got involved in civil rights and anti-war work and um, in psychedelics. So all of that made it difficult to do a traditional uh, graduate study. Um, and I was also teaching. Um, and um, it just really, it was, ex it was chaotic. And in 1970, on our campus and others around the country, um, the police took over the campus. Can you imagine that now? But that happened. And um, uh, so um, it just, it was impossible to teach and it was, it was just hard, you know. So um, with the person who was then my partner, boyfriend, um, I decided to, uh, I wanted to travel a little and see if um, anywhere uh, on the planet, people knew like a more compassionate, sane way to live. And um, yeah. so um, we went to Europe and then we traveled overland from London to Delhi. Um, in those years, there were these um, kind of hippie buses going across, um, magic bus, they were called, um, going all the way across. And, and at that time, you could go through Europe and then the former Yugoslavia and then Turkey and um, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and into India, and every place was peaceful. Amazing, huh? And, uh, and every place also, people still really loved Americans. Not so true anymore. And people right. in these little tiny villages with like sheep everywhere, they'd have a little picture of Kennedy on their little altar, wow. whatever. Yeah. JFK was like, he was like a saint internationally. Um, and so, uh, anyhow, it was a great journey. And people took us into their homes and their mosques and their churches. And um, we began to um, understand a basic truth that as, as unique as we each are, there's something that we all share that's very deep. And um, mm. uh, and so we got to India, and I hadn't really grown up thinking much about India at all. But um, some people had, you know, some uh, at that time, not a lot, but some Westerners were going to India and intentionally. Sharon, 
went there specifically to learn to meditate. Um, but uh, he and I had been at the same college at SUNY Buffalo. But um, she was an undergraduate, and in American studies, she probably told you that then in American studies, you had to spend a year out of the country looking back at America too in order to get your degree. I think that's brilliant. But, and I don't think they do it anymore. But, no. um, yeah. uh, but uh, anyhow, we got to Delhi, and on the first day I was there, I was walking around uh, a Connaught place in Delhi, the center of town, and um, saw these other Westerners. Uh, and in those times, there weren't very many. So we went up to each other and introduced, and that was Sharon Salzberg and um, her then-boyfriend, and um, uh, so cool. And um, she told us that uh, she had just heard about that a Burmese Buddhist teacher in Bogaya was going to teach a course for Westerners for the first time. And uh, she had heard it from Dan Goldman, uh, who'd been there for a yoga conference. So um, we thought, you know, we didn't really know what we were going to do in India, and it was a little bit like, you know, wine and cheese in Paris. Well, we'll do meditation in India. So yeah. <laughs> I say that to say that I wasn't on a mission to become spiritual or learn to meditate or any of it. I was just looking for, you know, a way of being, which is maybe yeah, and. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we went to that retreat, and, um, and it was extraordinary. The teacher was Goenka, and he taught in these 10-day uh, courses, and there was like no, no speaking courses, silent, um, and no, um, I don't know anything, no reading, no writing, no we ate two meals a day. We, um, yeah, we didn't do anything but meditate. And, um, and, <laughs> and there were about 70, I don't know the number, I think it was about 70 uh, Westerners there who had all come for a lot of the same reasons that we were there. And uh, Ramdas was there, and, um, and others who became my lifetime friends, Krishnadas and and Sharon and Joseph Goldstein and many others. Um, and but now, when I think about it, we were sitting on the floor. There was like a thin, like dory rug, you know. And uh, we were sitting on the floor for what well, it was 12 hours a day or something, real close to each other. Um, <laughs> everybody fit into this room meditating. And uh, now, of course, you know, in meditation, centers there are these big fluffy zafus and a zabutan underneath it yeah but people have their whole thing worked out but um we just sat down on the floor <laughs> closed our eyes and um, started meditating well by the end of the 10 days i realized it was just so radical it was so amazing i, I had been a student of literature so by the time I left, I was in the fourth year of my PhD, and I, you know, I had read hundreds of books, right? I was always looking 
But before that, I'd studied philosophy at Penn. And mm. uh, uh, I was always looking for the answer in some book, you know, outside myself. To be able to look into my own mind and discover the t anything that had to do with the truth or the way that things are um, was just radically awakening to me. And um, so uh, I, we all went through variations on that experience because hardly anybody there had meditated before. And even Ramdas, who had been in India before, hadn't done anything intensive like this. So, mm. um, uh, so at the end of the time, we asked Goenka if he'd teach another one, and he did. And then we did and another one, and we, we did four, I think, in a row. Um, and so, from the time of walking in when I didn't know that I could sit down for five minutes and be quiet, um, to 40 days later or so, um, it, was, it was quite amazing. And I, uh, you know, I just realized that there is, there was a different way of being in the world, that not only did it cultivate, like, attention, um, but it also awakened compassion, love, awareness of interconnection, and awareness mm -hmm. of the impermanence of everything, just watching uh, thoughts arise and fall away. Stunning, you know? So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that was the beginning for me of changing the way I was in the world. So with the instruction for meditation was it just sitting and focusing on your breath was there something else to it what what approach was it he taught vipassana which was and the way he taught it was the first three days we did we focused on our breath coming in and out of the nostrils just noticing the breath and letting go of any thoughts emotions uh, memories whatever, and just coming back to the breath so three mm -hmm. days and then the, so in order to uh, increase your attention. And then at the end of three days, he teaches a, a practice of, he called it sweeping, sweeping through your body. You notice, you take your mind into uh, your body and you notice, not try to relax, but just notice what you feel um, mm -hmm. from within your body. Uh, starting at the top of your head and then noticing everything all the way. It can take a long time to get to the your feet and then and then you sweep back up again. And you do that for seven days. Yeah. And then um and then I think there was like on day eight or something they um we learned loving kindness meditation. By that yeah. time we had a good awareness of our own self slash non-self, <laughs> and um, right. and then in the loving kindness practice, you bring other people to mind, and then you send out wishes for well-being um, for other people, and that was also amazing for me. I just I loved it. Um, so yeah. So. It was the method kind of, you're bringing this 
level of awareness and feeling within yourself and then over time that then de- that then develops into the loving kindness which is a method for radiating that feeling that you've cultivated within yourself out to other people yeah and it is so it's they're all practices so it's yeah. like what you do is you notice as you are if i'm um sending uh good wishes to um you know, to someone who I care about, who it's easy to send it to. Um, then I just notice um, what that feels like. I notice what I'm feeling about the other person, any emotions or memories that arise. Uh, I'm noticing um, how I get distracted about by other things and have to bring my mind back to doing that. And I notice how it feels in my body and the, this kind of feeling of warmth as you focus mm-hmm. on your heart and sending love to others. Uh, and then part of the practice is to bring to mind um, someone who's very difficult for you. And, and over the years I've found the practice is really helpful for this. You bring yeah. uh, someone, in the classic text they call it your enemy, but it's anybody you're having a hard time with, you know. And then you, you, you repeat the same phrases, and but so I'm sending, um, uh, I'm wishing that you be happy, and healthy, and safe. But of course, if you're sending all that to somebody who you really have a hard time with, it's you notice how hard that is to do. You can barely say the phrases. I was struggling yeah. many years later. I was struggling with someone, and I was trying so hard because I other than practice I didn't know any way to get past this my mind wasn't coming up with any solutions so I do the practice and nothing was happening I could not send him anything good Sharon said because she's the I say the master or the mistress the queen of love and kind yeah. um, she said try this in as much as I can, I wish that you be happy. In as mu- and of course, I could say that because in the beginning, as much as I could was like almost nothing. But then you just yeah. keep doing it and doing it, and it expanded. And it wasn't, you know, after some days of weeks of doing it, it wasn't like I wanted to be with this person, but right. I, I was no longer carrying around that close-heartedness, uh, which affects you more than the other person. You know? So right, uh, it's a powerful practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I've just recently learned about. I'm very much in the infancy stages of it. I've I've only done it a handful of times, but in the times that I have, it's it's a very interesting feeling that that you get from that. And and I I, I like that point that you mentioned of, it doesn't mean that you have to be close with that person doesn't mean that you have to like want to hang out with that person and and be around each other all the time but the feelings that that you have are are different it's just like i'm going this way that person's going that way and we're good like there's less poison that you're holding on to that you're letting burden you yeah because with all those negative emotions you know people you can't forgive you know people you're just angry at whatever um you're the one who suffers from it 
You know, mm-hmm. they don't even know you're feeling that. And if they yeah. do, they don't care. But, yeah. um, but you have to carry that around. It feels awful. Yeah. Yeah. So from that place, after doing these practices and having these experiences in your finding something that really resonates with you like you said a way of being i really like that phrase that way of thinking about it where do you go from there well where i went from there was um to meet neem Karoli baba who was ramdas's teacher who he'd met in a former trip to india and i goanka was very much against um gurus so he was a buddhist in a hindu country and there were, for sure, and in India in those years, everybody had a guru. That was just like part of how you lived your life. And, mm. but of course, there were lots of fraudulent gurus. You know? Yeah. And and I think he had seen other Westerners come to India, looking for someone to tell them everything and how to live their lives, and you know, and take advantage of it. And so. He was very fierce about not, you don't need a guru. And and he was also uh, repeating what the Buddha had said. You, all you need is someone a little ahead of you on the path who knows these practices and can teach them to you and can help mm-hmm. you and walk you home. Um, and so I, I didn't know. I And so I definitely didn't think I wanted a guru. And then, uh, I was with Ram Das. We were on a bus, and we, anyhow, we met Maharaji, and uh, that was a familiar name for him. And I just, I don't know. In the moment I met him, he was just, uh, he what he just, my sense of what what it can mean to be human just expanded. He was like beyond anything I could imagine even wanting to be. And yet, he was like this ordinary person wrapped up in a blanket, which it was India, so you could do that. And, um, <laughs> but, um, but there was something about him. He was so utterly present. And that presence was so loving. Um, I had just never experienced it. And I just knew that everything I thought this life was about and what I could be, um, there was much more to it than that. And that he knew and that I just wanted to be around him for a while and see if I could discover some of that. And so I had gone to India for, I thought, two weeks and I stayed for two years, and um, and he was, uh, you know, really. Um, many people have read about him from Ramdas. He was really wonderful. Yeah. So my my understanding of him is that he didn't really give many teachings. You have you have the you know the classic love serve remember, but it seemed like it was mostly from him just being around somebody that embodied a certain kind of state and that was able to rub off onto you. And yeah. that was really where the main teaching came from. Yeah. In India, they understood this, um, the experience of being with another person and just from being with that person. <laughs> you, you, n- now, um, 
you know, scientists here, and neuroscientists in particular, um, have discovered, well, Danny Goleman talks about mirror neurons, you know, that just being in the presence of each other, we're actually changing, not just, we're not just exchanging ideas, but we're actually changing, you know, our neurons, you know, yeah. the, our cells, you know. I used to feel that, and I always thought it was a kind of, kind of silly metaphor. Like, I'd say, I feel like my cells have all been rearranged, you know. <laughs> but that was, I think, actually what was happening. And, um, and then, of course, he, yeah, he never, he didn't teach any practices. He just, um, you know, when I was leaving to go home, I said, what should I do? And he said, <laughs> love everyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was that frustrating? Was there a time when you're like, that's it? Like, is that all? Like, or, or, or did you get it just from the feeling? Like, I, okay. I feel like it, it, originally I probably would be uncomfortable with that because I'd be like, what? Yeah. But it makes sense. Well, being around him, whatever he said seemed perfect, you know, but of course after it was like, what? But I did go one time to him. Um, I got pregnant while I was in India from my partner. I said somewhere, it was un very unusual because we were all like sleeping like 10 people in a room on the floor, you know, it was like funky. Um, and But one night we happened to be alone, you know, and so, so it didn't even occur to me that I was pregnant, but, and there weren't any doctors around, you know, so anyhow, eventually I figured it out. So I, I went to Maharaji and I said, Maharaji, I'm pregnant, what should I do? And I thought he would give me like some special mantra or something, you know. And uh, he said, <laughs> all of a sudden he turned into like a concerned grandfather. He said, you should be married. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you should be married, and I'll marry you tomorrow. <laughs> we had to go to the bazaar and get a ring and go and do all the things. Um, Krishna Das plays the kirtan. And, um, oh, that's so cool. It, <laughs> what a wedding story. That's an amazing okay. wedding story. It's amazing, yeah. And um, uh, they did a great, they do a great thing in India. It, every, all the guests arrive with um, a, a lay, that's Hawaiian, but uh, you know, a, a, I forget what they call it in India, but flowers on a string, you know. And, um, uh, and they, they arrive wearing them, and then after you're married, then they take them off and they put them all on the bride and groom. So the bride and groom are standing there with like, you know, 50 layers of flowers. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, yeah. So, but that was a time when I expected, you know, at last I'm going to get a special practice, you know. <laughs> you should marry. <laughs> yeah, those stories of him are so funny. Yeah, I'm just hearing about this. He just implants these like, these simple messages that like, if you actually take him to heart, that's really all you need. It's like this, this perfect simplicity and, and minimalism to these to these teachings instead of like. Like like you said, you you read a lot of books in school. I've I've kind of gone down the same road, and I'm reaching this point where eventually I'm like, it kind of feels like they're all just all just pointing at the same thing, and and like once you get it, then like you, you don't even 
need all the words anyway. Yeah. And it's, it seems like he was somebody who like taught from that place. Absolutely. Yeah, he did. And of course, like, love everyone. Then we got back here and we had to translate that into what does it mean to live in this country and love everyone. Right. You know? uh, I'm, you know, of course, still working on it. But, um, yeah. you know, it affects every single moment of the day and every person I meet and all of it, you know. It was great advice, it turns out. <laughs> you can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That it's it's such a good mantra. The the one the one that that he has. It, it kind of it kind of blew me away the first time I read about it. Not not too long ago, I was like, oh, like I, I, like that. That's really all you all you have to focus on, and then you kind of figure out how to apply that in your own way. Yeah, exactly. And of course, that is a full time job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much. So much later on, you guys. You, you guys, you and Ram Dass get together and write Walking Each Other Home. How, how did that book come about? Well, we had, before that, we had done many things together. We traveled yeah. together, we taught, and all the, Ram Dass was really instrumental in developing or helping to support all these new education centers like Omega and uh, uh, Esalen and all these places around the country that were, were growing up to um, teach meditation, yoga, and so on. Um, and so we taught together in lots of those places. And, um, and, and together we, with others, started Seva Foundation, which was the organization to, Maharaji did say, love everyone and serve everyone. So we were always looking for ways to do that. And um, so we founded with others um, uh, Save a Foundation, which worked in blindness in uh, mainly in India and Nepal. And um, and then through that period, we we wrote a book together called Compassion in Action, which was as Ramda started talking about service as a path. And people want to know, you know, what can I do? You know, how can I help? And so um, we wrote that book about that. And then many things happened in between. And um, uh, then he had a stroke, and that was 25 years ago or something. And, um, you know, it was a massive stroke. They didn't think he'd survive. And, but, he was amazing. It's like both his body and mind just, like, they didn't come back in the sense that, like, I mean, he was paralyzed on one side, he was in a wheelchair, he couldn't walk. Yeah. And he had all kinds of things wrong with his body. And um, he, and he had aphasia, so he couldn't uh, talk. I mean, he, a lot of words he couldn't find, so he had mm -hmm. to very simply with a lot of silences. But yeah. he like mastered that, <laughs> and it was so great. I mean, I just you know early got used to those silences. We should have more of them, you know, like in between ideas and thoughts, and you know, just then this like yeah. quiet, so great. And um, anyhow, 
during that time, then he uh, he lived in Maui, and um, then we, he wanted to keep teaching in some way because he had loved doing that, and um, so we started doing these retreats in Maui where people would come to him, and. Um, and then, and we brought in other people to share the teaching because he could, he couldn't hold the place for you know all day long or something. So, um, anyhow, so we taught together at those retreats for years. Sharon was also often there, and um, uh, and then in the last, then a few years before he died, he you know he'd written so many books and he he was a brilliant, uh, charismatic speaker and so yeah. oh my god in the early days you know he would he'd start talking <laughs> he could talk with no notes for like five hours and people were <laughs> they were like they were hanging on his every word it was crazy um and um so he missed that <laughs> but he couldn't do what he used to do and you know he had been a professor at Harvard before, and he had um, he and Tim Leary were working on psychedelics and consciousness. They were studying it, um, and then mm -hmm. he did what he wasn't supposed to do, which was he gave psychedelics to one of his undergraduate students, and Harvard fired him. Um, but I, and he always in telling his story, he always talked about how first psychedelics and then meeting Maharaji and so on, that everything changed for him, and uh, then he started speaking about these things. But I talked to people later on who'd been his students at Harvard all that long ago, and they said he was amazing even then. So he's teaching adolescent psychology. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, anyhow, we, we design these retreats, and we do that every year. And then um, toward the end, he was reflecting on like his legacy, basically, you know, what books he had written and what he had said. And I think he'd always talked about dying, even in Be Here Now. It's pretty, the words are all there. I mean, I went back, I hadn't yeah. read it in years, and I went back and read it, and he really knew it at some level then. But, we know the difference. You're in school. You know the difference between being able to say it and knowing it. You know? Right. And um, so Ramdas felt like there were things that he really knew about about um, aging and dying. Now that he was, well, he was 89 when he died, and so we started this book like three or four years before that. And. Um, uh, he said, you know, I, I want to do, um, I want to write one last book, and I want to put in it what I know now about dying. And because, you know, it's hard to hear anything about dying for any of us, because none of us want to. And um, he said, I, I want to say it in a way that people will be able to hear it better, if they can hear it at all. So. Um, so then we, and we knew he couldn't write like essay, like writing or chapter writing. Yeah. So anyhow, we decided then we'd just have conversations about time and see what happened. And we made this vow to each other that we would only 
um, I'll say what I know and not say what I don't know, which mm-hmm. is a very demanding <laughs> guideline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In uh, graduate school, I probably would have been completely silent. <laughs> so we did that, you know, and you've read the book, so you know. And it was really, well, it was a total blessing to be with him in that zone. <laughs> We'd, I'd go up to his room in the mornings, and I, I was living in Massachusetts, so I'd go back and forth and spend a couple of weeks at a time in Maui and just go up and in the morning, and then we'd just start talking. And anytime you're with a good friend and you bring up things that really matter to you, you know, it's a sacred space. So, yeah, uh, yeah so that's how we did it. And then he'd joke, he'd say, we'd say, this is taking a long time. <laughs> there are so many silences. We'd say, um, uh, he'd say, but Mirabai, this time we have a real deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I said, just stay, just stay alive until the book comes out. <laughs> and but it was real. <laughs> so, in fact, he did. He, he made out, it. He, he came out in 2018. He died yeah. in 2019. And he had the time to, like, sign people's books. And <laughs> it was really great. Yeah. So in putting that together in, in, those, in those conversations, how did you guys navigate like what to talk about? Were you guys just kind of thinking out loud and exploring these ideas just as they as they came to you and just kind of venturing into this into this topic, just how, how you saw fit in, in the moment for each conversation? Yeah, in the beginning it was easy because it was so much and you just start talking and it would lead here and there. Uh, but then after a while I started thinking about, you know, more about what people's what people's concerns are about dying and what we should yeah. be sure and include like, you know, a chapter on grieving, you know, a chapter on, you know, on on what's important to let go of before you die, um, something about forgiveness, um, things that um, didn't necessarily arise spontaneously, but were obviously you know part of it. So there was some, you know, there was some work around organizing it and making sure everything got included that was obvious, obviously not everything got included, but like the, the main themes. Yeah. Um, um, but mainly when I would do that, I'd say, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about forgiveness today. And then we just go, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was easy because he... He had thought about and spoken about all these things so much, and now he was going through it. Like, yeah. he was trying to figure, is there anybody I haven't forgiven? He was like, because I'm going to die soon, and I really want to know. So it was great um, uh, motivation, you know. Yeah, he had worked with dying people for a long time, as yeah. far as I understand. What was it about 
this dying process that interested him so much? Why was he so passionate about that? You know, he says something in the book that not many people have said anything to me about, but I thought it was a revelatory. He said the, re the reason he started sitting with dying people uh, was in the 80s, during the AIDS epidemic. And um, friends asked him to do that, and so many people were dying then. He was in San Francisco. Um, and he said at one point, you know, he said, because, um, you know, he was gay, and he, um, and he, he grew up in the 40s, and he went to prep school, and um, it was not a good time to be a gay boy. Um, and he just got, in, in, in prep school, I remember he said, some of the boys, I beat him with hangers. And, um, and then he pretty much stayed, he pretty much stayed in the closet. When he said, then when he moved out over a little, he said he was bisexual, and he had some women uh, friends, and he never, it was hard for him to um, really fully own it because because of that background, you know. Uh, ten, even ten years later, it was a little better, but then it was really hard. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, but anyhow, so people asked him, and he was out, of course, by the time the AIDS came, but he, um, people asked him to sit with these various people who were dying, and he did, but he said, with this kind of, like, mischievous grin on his face, he said, you know, the, I, the, the real reason I did that, I wanted to be with those guys, you know. I really like those guys. I wanted to be close to them. <laughs> I never said that before. I don't know if I ever knew that before, but that's how I got into being with the dying. <laughs> it was so sweet. And so, you know, yeah. <laughs> but then he, then he um, did uh, start this uh, center, Living Dying Center. <laughs> we, yeah, it was, the idea was we were going to start a center for dying, and he knew the um, folks at uh, the the Zen Hospice in um, in San Francisco, and uh, they were working with dying people. So he um, so he wanted to start, and he wanted to start a dying center where um, the people who were dying would be doing practice and waking up through their dying, and um, and the people who were caring for them would also be seeing it as practice of service, a practice of, you know, waking. And um, and then we, uh, there were very, I mean, mostly people like died in hospitals in the worst way, you know. And uh, so we wanted to create this environment that was beautiful and that was natural and there were kind people taking care of you and feeding you and all. So we did the whole thing, and then we recruited, well, I'm in the beginning, six or eight people. It was a house in San Francisco. And <laughs> after some while, people said, well, how's it going, Ramdaski? <laughs> he said, nobody's dying. 
<laughs> They're all enjoying it too much. They're not dying. <laughs> so we had to figure out a different model. <laughs> His humor is what really stuck out to me when I first started listening to him. Like you mentioned, uh, how prolific of a speaker he was, and the first I ever had had come across from him was was just lectures, and it, it hooked me right away. And like he had that way of like like you talk about this honesty and this like humor and lightness that he had in speaking that that was so compelling and so so unique. I mean, to me, the the first time that I, I heard his lecture, I was like this guy he sounds like a stand-up comic like he's it sounds like he's like setting up punchlines and he's so he's so interesting and while being able to, to deliver these mess messages at the same time was something that was that was really was, was really compelling to me in in dealing with a topic like like death which is office uh, often approached and thought about kind of morbidly what what was the role of that kind of humor and lightness in your guys' conversations? Well, it was very present because it is, it's absurd and humorous that we go through life every day ignoring, denying that we are all going to die. And, um, and we go along you know, living our lives as if that's not going to happen, most of us, and um, taking everything terribly seriously, you know. And um, it's funny, I mean, that we take, that we, um, that we take it all so seriously, and that we get so caught up in it, when it's not that we shouldn't, use all of our energy to do what is the best thing we could be doing on this planet right now. That's true. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that we're just here for a short time and getting attached to things being a certain way and putting so much energy into that is um, funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How much of that just comes from getting too wrapped up in your own your own thinking in your own mind like what, what kind of a of a role does does just mindfulness play in in dealing with this process it seems like at any time that that you're able to have that kind of awareness that that lightness and that humor just it, it kind of comes out naturally and all of the like the, the the worrying that you're kind of alluding to just falls away of, of itself yeah. um i mean that is that is part of the process of, and particularly with like the basic um, mindfulness practices of watching your mind and watching, trying to focus on your body or your breath, and then watching what arises, and um, and just like seeing how resistant your mind is to being quiet for 15 minutes, you know, it's just like, brutal will do anything it can you know, to get your attention. And, yeah. uh, and the more you let it go, the better it gets at coming up with something even better, you know. And after a while, just seeing that process is, I mean, it's poignant and painful, but it's also amusing, you know, because yeah. there's a level at which it's just mind, it's just thoughts. They rise and they fall away. What are they? And where did they go? 
you know, you begin to see that, and um, you know the way in which we get so emotionally responsive to different things, forgetting the way in which it's all impermanent. You know, it comes and it goes, and um, you know, to the our work is to be here in the moment, each moment, with as much like like awareness and love as we can bring, and um, and with the intention to relieve as much suffering as possible and to not cause mm -hmm. more. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like what you said about forgetting and th this idea that it's like that you kind of you kind of already already know. It's not it's not like you don't have to necessarily go and figure anything out. It's just yeah. about like getting everything else out of the way and the understanding is already there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, it takes a lot of patience and mm -hmm. and commitment to be with it long enough to see it. Um, but you know, there's a level at which what else is there to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so it's so satisfying. That's not the word, but um, when when you can rest in that awareness for some time, you know, so relieving, you know, of all that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't do a lot of good things with your life. It really means that you're able to see more clearly what what it is you have to offer and what's being called for from the world. Um, and then to figure out how to do that. I've worked a lot with activists of different kinds, and um, you know, the first the first thought is, you know, um, I'm it's selfish um, meditating. It doesn't have to do with you're not changing anything in the world. Um, but um, after a while, you begin to see, and it doesn't take that long. Um, you begin to see that um, this awareness uh, allows you to see what's yeah. happening in this moment, what is actually happening, and then what could I do to change the part of it that is causing suffering? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it makes sense when, when that, that criticism comes up, but it, it seems to me like that's the it, it's it's the most direct way to kind of fine-tune a certain state of mind that at least for me personally that i'm in and everything that i do comes out of that state so to me it's, it seems like the most important place to start yep <laughs> all right so i'll have um i'll have the book linked and then your website linked uh, along with that do you have anything else that that you'd like to let people know about I think that I think that's good. Yeah, link to the, the be here now. What link to you can link to my website, mirabyblers.com, mm -hmm. or and okay. the uh, uh, maybe the um, podcast on the Here Now Network because I, I don't know if you listen to any of them, but there's some great people that I interviewed. I loved it. Yeah, some really fabulous people. So. Um, I like, always like to share that. That's, and they're on um, YouTube also. 
you can do that, you know. You yeah. can put all these, these Zoom um, interviews on, on YouTube. And then when people are on there looking for something else, they'll pop up and say, just listen to this now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with me. I, I really appreciate your time, and I, I really appreciate uh, the, the work that, that you do in, in writing this book. It was a pleasure to read, so, so thanks a lot. That's, thank you. I, I don't say yes to, I mean, there are a lot of podcasts. For some reason, I just thought you were going to be really good, and you were. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>